Good morning, girls. Good morning. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this is the kind of morning where I need like an intravenous uh, coffee line right now. <laughs> the yeah. heck of a night. How are you good. guys? Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. I would. I need my dark roast Starbucks today, but I have instant, so it's not quite the same. But oh well. <laughs> yeah, okay. I like your face, Louise. <laughs> like I know, right. I know. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not. <laughs> oh well. It, if it wakes you up, I guess it does the job. Well, we'll find out if I start. Yes, exactly. Or not. <laughs> the proof. We'll <laughs> the proof is in the pudding. Yeah. <laughs> so um we have an interesting show today um we monday morning motivation is usually very light the last few weeks we've had tackled uh really uh interesting subjects uh, and not so light but they no. needed to be talked about and yeah. they're interesting subjects and uh, hopefully today it will motivate people to do something about uh healthcare because we're going to be talking about healthcare. And we're going to be talking to Elaine McDonald and Louise Longto from the Cornwall Health Coalition. Hi, good morning, ladies. Good, good morning. morning. How are you today? You need coffee too? Oh, <laughs> yes, I've had my shot. <laughs> shot. <laughs> Me too. Oh, mine's right here. Um, okay, so the Cornwall Health Coalition for um, people who are looking right, uh, watching right now and don't know what it is. What is it exactly? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I just before I answer that, <clears throat> and I'll share my time with Louise to answer that because uh, the the coalition is such a broad network of people who come together from all over the place. You know, we're not one easily defined group. But before I say anything more about that, I want to say thank you, Julia and Maylise and Louise, for the <coughs> opportunity to speak to the general public. You know, you mentioned in your introduction that people should do something. I think so many people are so utterly discouraged after the months of COVID, which of course was not the, the fault of the health system, but the health system response to COVID necessarily keeping people away from care centers that they would ordinarily go to. Like so many things uh, came together to create kind of a perfect storm to make people simply discouraged. And when people get discouraged, they think that the system is so big that they have no power to affect change in it. But opportunities like this that you're providing us to speak to people, I hope will help fuel people's confidence in the fact that Every individual has uh, the ability to affect the way our governments operate. And um, I thank you for that. Well, you're so, very welcome. Yeah, I guess it's that same conviction that led to the creation of the Health Coalition over 30 years ago, when uh, a whole lot of people who treasured, obviously, the public health care system felt that uh, the system was in jeopardy. And it's simply in jeopardy, not because of ill will or evil intentions on the part of anybody. It's simply that I think in North America and in the whole Western world, we revere money making. And I think we put the opportunity to make money and the ability to make money. You know, we consider that kind of a special class of effective living. And we admire millionaires and billionaires, for example. And I think that sort of seeps down into the public consciousness where 
pretty soon you see people thinking that business, which is a profit-making um, agency, is somehow superior to a service model where people pool their resources in a social or socialistic sense and use those combined resources to benefit everybody. So it's just this kind of philosophy out there, you know, service versus profit. And uh, there is nothing wrong with making money. There's no question that without money, I mean, this is how we live. This is how we, uh, we survive. Obviously, money is an important part of our, our social uh, structures. But so, too, is the service model. Our education is based on service rather than profit. Our healthcare is based on service rather than profit. And certainly our social services is based on, uh, on a service model rather than profit and a sharing that makes society work well, where nobody is cut off or disenfranchised. I mean, you see ter terrible things happening when people are isolated and cut off from the rest of society when they don't have enough to participate, as for example, when people are homeless. So housing too becomes something that has to be uh, um, administered in a service uh, sensibility. We can allow for profit making, selling houses, make all that, but still there has to, at the core uh, basis of our society, there has to be the conviction that we need the service too. <clears throat> and so anyway, in the 90s, social services and especially healthcare was very threatened because uh, Governments were simply trying to balance the books and reduce taxes. And somehow these services are the easiest ways. You know, if you don't want to raise taxes, well, then cut the services that you're uh, affording to people. And, and sadly, there's been a lot of that. I, I think a lot of it stems, you know, from U.S. and Britain, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. They were champions of this sensibility that I think has led the whole... Uh, every country that I can think of, it's it's given us this challenge of we need to determine the service level we're willing to sustain and uh, the amount of services we are not willing to let go ever. And I think access to public health care is one of them. So you get all these people coming from all over the place. <laughs> you know, we've got church groups, we've got teachers, nurses, uh, every every walk of life and and you know knitting clubs there anybody who has any sort of a group sensibility as well as individuals they belong to the health coalition so did you say 30 years oh yes oh yes wow yeah they started well that's when i first joined up in the 90s when we had the um the awful cuts at the federal level and then at the provincial level to basic services. So we've been at this for a long time. So Elaine, this is the Ontario Health Coalition, but oh, the Cornwall. Yes, yes. Uh, no, this is the Ontario Health Coalition. Okay. We started in Cornwall too at the same time. Now there've been oh. ebbs and flows, you know, like we get really active if there's a, a proposal to cut hospital beds or something like that. And then other times, you know, we, we kind of stand down when we feel that the system is working as it should or a crisis has been averted and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But right now we absolutely feel that uh, the system is under tremendous pressure and it's time for the people to stand up 
and um, and let the government know that what 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 people want, and we we know that what people want is public health care. So again, for those who are uh, watching who don't necessarily know what the issue at hand is, because I find that one of the issues, one of the problems, is that this is happening very quietly in Ontario, and we don't necessarily know that it's happening. Like a lot of people, if if I would be curious to go on the streets and do a social experiment and ask people what you know if they know that something is happening to their yeah. healthcare, and they. I, I bet you anything that most of them don't know that this is happening. So what's the issue at hand? Exactly. Well, well exactly. I think it's um, the impoverishment of the public health care. You know, the governments have, you know, defunded a lot of health care services and a lot of health care institutions. Uh, and their solution to it is to provide uh, private companies with money, more money than they're putting into the uh, public health care in order to what they call reduce wait times, which is a false notion. But uh, in the short run, you know, maybe it will reduce, you know, for the, I don't know, a thousand people that that will do in the short run. But in the long run, it will continue to take staffing away from the public system, which now our healthcare providers are in short demand, you know, are in, in demand everywhere. And there's a big shortage of them, mainly because of government austerity projects and bills that have reduced wages and working conditions and staffing levels. So the government on one hand is impoverishing the public system. So people will say, oh, I can't see a doctor. I don't have a general practitioner. Uh, I can't get my surgery. You know, those kinds of things that we're all familiar with. And then on the other hand, there, these companies will come in and say, well, you know, we can do your surgery in two months and ostensibly it won't cost you anything more than your health care card. But we all know that companies are there for a profit and the standard profit for these kinds of health care facilities is 20 percent. So in the long run, these companies have to get that at least 20 percent from somewhere and they're going to get it from upselling, you know, it's just like when you go to buy a, ca a car and maybe you want, you want, the you, know, you, want a Chevro you want a Chevrolet and they're saying, oh, you really need a Lexus. Yeah. You know, so that's the kind of thing these companies are going to do. They're going to upsell you. You know, it's happening now with, uh, it, with cataract surgery, right? The, the doctors are saying, the clinics are saying, well, you know, the standard lens that the government provides are not good enough. You need these wonderful extra lenses that cost $1,200 more. And really, do they provide much value for the $1,200? And how can two little pieces of plastic be worth $1,200? Yeah, you know, like that's just... Yes, I know, I Louise. Louise is uh, <laughs> trying to get in there. No, I'm not trying to get okay. in. I'm just adding. So, so those are, but, yeah. yeah, those are the kinds of things that are happening and will happen more and more. Uh, you know, people and, you know, and I can't blame people if they're in a lot of pain, if they need hip replacements, you know, and the, the clinic says, well, instead of waiting two years, you can come to my clinic and we'll do it, you know, in two weeks, you know people are human and they need relief from their pain. So I understand all of that, but uh, that will just compound the problem for every other, every other citizen and your family as well. So um, 
I think Joy. that that's the big issue there. Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you. Joy is asking, would you say that our marginalized citizens will be once again those who will suffer even further? Yes, of course, because those are the people that, that can't afford to pay an extra $20,000 for a hip you know, to have it done privately. Uh, those are the people that maybe don't know, you know, when they go to their doctor and their doctor says it'll wait two, you have to wait two years for a hip replacement. It is not two years. These timelines are all expanded. When I went to get cataract surgery, they told me, you know, I could go to the private clinic in two weeks or the regular cataract surgery would take six months. Well, I was willing to wait because I didn't have a a big case of anything so it was so i said no I'll, I'll wait for the public one and it was only six weeks wait not six months oh. so I have a, yeah i have a question though and i don't think that people get it you know at the moment at the moment what i'm hearing is that um you know if you want private health care it won't cost anything more it's like big deal the government will so, sort of pay for it somehow but as time goes on, if I if privatization installs itself, will people need health insurance? Is it well, there's, there's, two folds, there's two folds to this, right? The government is the taxpayer, right? So if they, if you're saying the government will pay, well, the government is going to pay an extra probably twenty percent. Well, that's your tax dollars, right? So you are paying either way. Either you pay with your credit card or you're paying with your tax dollars. So, you know, that's that's the one issue about, you know, the government statement that you won't be paying more. Well, yes, your taxes so now will you're be paying higher. for private health care with your tax dollars. Yeah, and I, I think it's so insidious that the, the uh, for years I, I watch elections, of course, I'm kind of a political junkie. And uh, a claim no. that, that candidates, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a claim that candidates always like to make is that uh, in a public system, you never need to use your credit card. You're always going to be good with your OHIP card. But now what Doug Ford is saying is you don't need your credit card. Your OHIP card will pay it all. And I guess at first blush, that might sound like good news to people. But the fact is, as Louise says, this means that your tax dollars, your tax dollars, our tax dollars are supplementing the fees that are being paid in the private clinics, which, as Louise said, again, are something like 20% higher than the fees that are charged in the public system. So the government is actually willing to pay that excess, that supplemental fee in order to support the development of a private system. And at the same time, it has the public system on starvation wages. I think the, uh, just the other second part to that, of course, is uh, people have said, well, you know, we'll get, we'll do like the states, we'll get supplemental health insurance, you know, through your, through your employer. So mm -hmm. maybe that extra 10% that the companies will have to pay to, to workers to, to buy that health insurance, that extra money will go on the cost of goods that you buy. You know, that only makes sense, right? You know, if a company has to charge an extra 10%, well, who's paying for that? It's us again. If we're paying an extra 10% for our loaf of bread or, you know, for our shirt or for our oil change. 
So, you know, so we would be paying in two ways, through our taxes and through increased costs for all of our consumer goods. And that's why companies like the the uh, Volvo, uh, no, it's uh, the Volkswagen plant that's that's moving to Ontario. Those companies see, uh, you know, an advantage to being in Ontario because the healthcare system doesn't have the private healthcare needs that the United States have. So right there, they look at uh, their their staffing costs will be lower because they don't have to pay supplemental insurance like they do in the United States. So that's an advantage to companies in Canada. Well, so those are I, kinds of, you know, the things that are not mentioned and not talked about so much in the media. I read, I, I was looking for uh, people to talk to Americans and, and I was uh, up on Twitter and I ended up having a Twitter conversation with an author by the name of Dan Monroe who wrote something called Casino Healthcare. Uh, and I bought the book and I read it. And, you know, pe people here have no concept of how complicated healthcare is in the U.S. And in fact, you know, they're the only industrialized country that doesn't have public health care, at least not the way that most do. And they also have the poorest health, health outcomes of any industrialized country. It's just, anyways. Sorry. So I'm curious because I don't know it all um, about the situation, but isn't this supposed to be a temporary um, solution to the backlogs? You know, um, I think that's facetious uh, thinking on the part of anybody who accepts that. And certainly I think it's duplicitous on the part of the government to, uh, to say that. Because once you begin something like a private system that can be kind of like a boutique system where if you want fast care and you want kind of like a spa-like environment even to have your, uh, your surgery done, it's going to be really hard to roll that back. For in the first place, in Canada, we don't have the labor force that can support two parallel systems. In fact, even on a very small scale, you take, for example, the Glengarry Memorial Hospital in, um, in Alexandria. There was a comparison done, uh, uh, an interview of all those small hospitals in East oh. Ontario. And um, as you know, the Alexandria Memorial, Glengarry Memorial Hospital has had more emergency room closures than any other hospital in Ontario in this last year. And uh, obviously, that's because of staffing shortages. Now, what they said in the interview, like how they're coping right now, is using what they call agency nurses. So this means that they don't have enough in-house public employees as nurses to keep their hospital open. So they're going outside. And in fact, in the interview, they uh, mentioned that the director mentioned that, yes, that this creates a sustainability problem because it's not sustainable because you're actually paying the agency nurses more than you would a public servant nurse who would be constrained by the provincial regulations from Bill 124, where nurses have been held to uh, lower wages for uh, for so long. So, yeah, Karen says this means we will wait even longer to get a family doctor. 
Well, one of the issues with family doctors is uh, training doctors. And what's happening is we are training more doctors, but most of the doctors see family medicine as, you know, the cheap sister of healthcare. They'd rather go into specialization where they can make more money. You know, one of the solutions is to make it more equitable, make it fairer for doctors to be family doctors, you know, not only specialists. We need more primary care physicians. That's only normal, right? You need more of the base of healthcare yeah. doctors than you need of the upper tier, you know, cardiac surgeons. More people will, will need, you know, a regular doctor than will need a cardiac surgeon. But they pay the cardiac surgeon so much more that it's worth it for them to specialize rather than be a family doctor. The, the pay structure for family doctors is not adequate. Uh, to sustain pe doctors, young doctors, mm -hmm. you know, after spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for education to go into family medicine because of that. So we need to, you know, revitalize the primary care physician role and the payment structure and those kinds of things so that young doctors will say, oh, yeah, you know, it is feasible for me to pay for my office and my staff and still make, you know, comparable amount of money to a cardiac surgeon. So that's, I think, one issue that we have to do. And until we we solve that problem, we will have a shortage of primary care physicians. And, uh, you know, the, the problem that all the people have in not getting surgeons and not getting those, you know, family doctors. And then, of course, people who don't have a family doctor and the walk-in clinics are closing, they have no other option but to go to walk to go to the emergency wards, which is the most expensive treatment a person can look at. So we need to look at you know a whole a whole gamut of different kinds of operations. Nurse, you know, nurse practitioners working alongside you know a family doctor, you know, those kinds of things that we could look at. Uh, you know, th there needs to be you know some more creative thinking. But the creative thinking that we need is not a for-profit system. It's a system that we reorganize the funds that we have, invest in the workers that work in that system so that they want to stay there and that they're happy. If you can befriend a doctor and have a heart-to-heart -heart about how OHIP pays them, it is shocking to see. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I know I've been on the list, like my kids, my family doctor, like many have, you know, they, not mine, but yes, mine. Uh, and the kids um, moved away after, you know, being here for like three years, I think. And then they disappeared. So my kids have been, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to follow my doctor to where he went. He took my, my case with him, but um, my kids have been on the list for probably, I want to say six years now to, uh, to get a family doctor. So there's, there's nothing um for them to to go to and we have like as we know we have only one clinic here in cornwall so it's uh it's uh, it's a it's a bad situation yeah. i think that it's, uh yeah and it's a, it, 
No, I was going to say it's a stressful situation when you don't have a doctor either, because I lost mine, as Louise did in December. Mm -hmm. And we were without a doctor, kind of panicking, like, so if we get sick, then what? Yeah. I was lucky enough to be, get a call, and I've got a nurse practitioner, but I don't think Louise, I don't think no. you've got anybody yet. And it was very, very worrisome, because you keep calling, and nobody is taking patients. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm glad you both brought up the question of nurse practitioners because as when my longtime family doctor retired, I was in the same boat and I waited, oh, I think two years applying every time a doctor, you know, there was an announcement, there was a new doctor in town, but I was just at the bottom of everybody's list, it seems. And then the Seaway Valley Clinic opened and um, happily, we were early enough registering there that it didn't take long before my husband and I both got calls and we were accepted as patients. So now that's a very successful model and the nurse practitioner is able to do so much that mm -hmm. we count on doctors to do that is really uh, not necessary that we have a doctor to perform certain services. But the government, just as it is with the public hospitals, is not funding them to the extent that the public needs because they will serve that vital need i mean they can sort out the the training of the doctors and the uh licensing of doctors at the same time that they are enhancing the system that takes the pressure off the doctors so that doctors can do doctor work and the clinic with its um it, clinic usually has a number of people in different capacities who can meet most of your medical needs and mm -hmm. they, they filter your needs and the point yeah. of you need to see a doctor, you see a doctor, but that's part of the clinic system. And I think that's working so well. And I understand it's working really well too uh, at the uh, the clinic, the Francophone clinic and the Tudor Center. So uh, there, are, there are solutions to this problem. And I can't help but think that the government is not readily taking us to the most progressive solutions mm -hmm. because they're simply trying to create, maybe trying to create the demand for a private system. I mean, if they starve the public system to the point sure. that it doesn't meet the population's needs, people will be rather desperate. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's interesting with the training of doctors, because I'm, I'm speaking right now as a city of Cornwall councillor. We have a really generous program. I mean, I, I think it's generous. I think we all do, although we're questioning that we'll give a scholarship of $25,000 a year for four years to someone who will train as a family physician and then obviously spend X number of years, I think it's maybe eight years working in the community. And um, we were not deluged with applications for that money. In fact, there have been very few over the years who have applied for it and received it. And we're, we don't make it hard to, uh, to, to achieve it. So um, as Louise said, there, I think the government has to do something to address the inequitable way in which family physicians who carry such a, a broad uh, burden, uh, the way they're compensated. Interesting comment here. Conspiracy theorists were saying the government used COVID to create the wait lists in order to privatize. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well, uh, but I don't know about that, but I will tell you that. <laughs> One of the ultimate authorities to me is the Financial Accountability Office. Because, you know, they say in politics, follow the money. Yeah. You follow mm -hmm. the money long enough or hard enough, you get pretty close to the answer. So 
I read the Financial Accountability Office website often. And I was kind of shocked at something I read in the March 23 report, and it had to do with wait, wait times. Now, apparently before COVID, well, not apparently, we all know that even before COVID, there were wait times. But apparently across the province, uh, it was acceptable to have a wait list of 200,000 patients. Wow. That you could, within six months, if you had 200,000 on the list, you'd be moving them through to their surgeries. So now that's not unreasonable. But apparently on those lists, there was always something they called the long waiters. And the long waiters apparently totaled 38,000 for every 200,000 who are on the wait list. You've got this additional 38,000 wait, wait, long waiters. Huh. And um, apparently the, the province claims it's on track to reduce the surgical wait list back to 200,000 by July of 2024. So the good news is, <laughs> I mean, and how can this be good news, except that perhaps that means that people get processed to the system within a reasonable amount of time. So they don't ever want to eliminate the wait list. They want to just bring it down to what they consider to be the manageable 200,000. Mm -hmm. So uh, having just read that recently, I, I have to think <laughs> about this. And apparently that's an acceptable objective. But the, uh, the financial accountability office says with the kind of money they're putting into it, like because they forecast the government outcomes in relation to the government's expenditures. And this works at all levels of government. You're, you are supposed to be able to know exactly what they're committing financially to achieve certain outcomes. And so the Financial Ability Office, which rates the government's spending plans at every level is saying they're not gonna meet their objectives, even though they're spending a lot of money. They're either not spending it wisely or they're just not spending enough to reach the objectives. So even though by 2024, we may be only uh, have only 200,000 people on the wait list, uh, we're still not going, we're not going to make it, even though that's the, the, the stated plan on the part of the government. And those 38,000 uh, long waiters, heaven knows how long they're going to wait. And apparently this is acceptable. My son um, had a, a uh, some sort of a... Um birthmark or something on his foot and it was growing and growing and growing so um I, I i got him to see a doctor who referred him to a dermatologist well i finally got the call last well two weeks ago i got the call from the dermatology clinic in ottawa two years later it's been wow. two years we've been waiting the oh. the thing is gone it's it's been gone for a while it's gone it resolved itself but you know, if it had like, like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what if it had been something serious? What if it had been cancer or, you know? Yeah. So like, it's a way too long of a, of a, of a wait list. Yeah. Is this, is, is moving towards privatization. If they turn around and they say, well, okay, we're going to privatize, but OHIP will pay for it. I mean, does it in fact save money anywhere no and i can't believe that the government will be willing to continue to pay tax dollars 
for services that are more expensive in a private system. So uh, that's, I, I can't see them doing that. So then but, what happens? Well, the unfortunate thing is this, because it's a private clinic, they have the right to confidentiality. Every penny that's spent in a public hospital, you can trace, you can find out where it goes. In a private clinic, you don't have that same right. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we don't have a long experience with private clinics invading the public system in, in Ontario here, but we've seen at least for a month's worth of work being done at Riverside Hospital, where the hospital, which uh, is not uh, able to keep its operating rooms open on the weekend, actually rents out its space to a private consortium, a corporation or a group of doctors who come in and they perform surgeries and they're actually paying their nurses more than the hospital regular nurses get. In fact, uh, it's been reported in the Citizen, and I've no reason to doubt it, it's never been challenged, that nurses have been offered $750 a day to work in that private situation. Now, I don't think that's sustainable, but even if it is sustainable, the fact is we don't really have the disclosure on the part of the government. We don't see exactly how much money they're paying the private clinics because the private clinics books are closed to all of us. They're private. Yeah. And really following the LRT debacle of the last, how many years is it? Five years or 10 years in Ottawa, the struggle is trying to get it started. And then uh, all the difficulty with the LRT, the inefficiency and the dangers um, that it has not ever been an open book as to what's been happening there because a private consortium for competitive reasons has a right to keep their books closed. The public does not get to see them. Even if the government pays part of it? No, even if the government pays part of it, you'll only ever know what the government's paying. And ironically, this makes people think the government is really inefficient if things aren't working, but we have no idea what the other half is contributing what their responsibilities are, what they're paying, and so on. So, I mean, that 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 situation has been in the courts back and forth for years. So, isn't it correct to say that there's a danger to that if um, the government continues to pay so much money on the mm -hmm. private side, it is going to completely destroy our public side as well? Because well, there will not be money anymore. Well, that's right. It's, it's certainly going to strip personnel out of the the public side. But I, the, uh, the other thing that it will do as well is a lot of our small rural hospitals rely on, you know, the cataract surgeries, the hip replacements, all those kinds of surgeries that they can do in order to get funds for the hospital. And if you take out all of those surgeries for the hospital, the hospital will not have enough funds to operate its services generally. So it will result in the closing of many small hospitals who are already just on the edge of, you know, having to close. Well, that will force them to close. And, you know, look at someone who lives in Alexandria. If you don't have an emergency room in Alexandria, you have to come to Cornwall, which is a 45 minute drive, I think, mm -hmm. you know, so you have an emergency and you have to wait 45 minutes and, you know, it'd be even longer if you're going by ambulance. By the time the ambulance gets to Alexandria and gets you to Cornwall, you're probably dead. Right. You know? yeah. 
So it has huge impacts for that emergency critical care for people who live in rural areas. Yeah, and I just want to add too, uh, the Cornwall Community Hospital, by the way, has never had to close its emergency room. Thank heavens. But Not yet. Uh, back to the point that uh, doctors, uh, that private clinics get compensated at a higher rate by the government than the public hospitals do. This isn't because the government is being a Santa Claus and it has a burst of generosity. It's not sustainable. The government is not going to continue to use tax dollars at some point in order to get the fees that they require, the private clinics, to satisfy their investors. Because after all, this is not a care service. It's a business. And to satisfy their investors, they're going to have to reach certain levels. And at that point, obviously, they're going to have to be fees and charges this has already been seen across the province where there have been private clinics operating. We have reams of testimonial from people who have been uh, charged more over and above what um, the, the fee is in order to access the service. Let's also remember that in the United States, these private clinics and private health care have worse outcomes for patients than the public has. And we saw that with long-term care during COVID, right? Uh, where the private long-term care homes had five times the death rate than the public yeah. ones had, all the while making huge profits for their shareholders. And that was at the expense of their workers and the expense of their patients. Uh, I've seen statistics in dialysis clinics where the mortality rate is higher in patients that have used private clinics because they cut corners. They cut corners except a treatment instead of lasting four hours, they will do a three hour treatment. So it's not as thorough, the blood doesn't get cleansed in the same way, you know, those kinds of things they're using. So you're, they're also using less nursing time then, and they're also using less dialysis fluid right? If it's a three-hour treatment instead of a four-hour treatment. So they have as much as a 3% higher death rate in these private clinics. And, uh, you know, it happens all over because they have to make a profit. The The one that's often mentioned is the Shuldice Clinic, where they do uh, hernia operations in Toronto. It predates and it was grandfathered into the system from before, you know, the Hospital Act, where we couldn't have private hospitals. So people, you know, say, oh, this is an excellent system. Well, if you've ever had anything to do with the Shuldice, you know, they only choose the cream of the crop of patients. You know, nobody that has a heart condition, nobody who's overweight, nobody who has any other comorbidity like diabetes or anything like that. They're choosing the cream of the crop. So you go to Shuldice if you're the ideal patient. But okay, OHIP is paying for your surgery, but they insist that you stay three days more than you need to in their luxury yeah. suites. So you pay for, for like three days in a luxury suite, which I don't know how much it is, but I imagine that would come to more than a thousand dollars. And you know, things like that, that uh, they're, they're upgrading in peripheral costs. So, um, you know, and if a patient at Shuldice has a complication, they are shipped to the public hospital as soon as they can get them out the door, right? And if, if after you've had your surgery the next week or the next day you have any complications, they won't see you. 
you're going to go to, you know, back to the public system. So they'll take the cream from all of the patients, but they won't handle any of the disturbances or anything else. So that's how they're making profit for their companies, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a danger for like um, surge, like the cost of things to increase greatly as well. If if you start charging privately for cataract surgery, for hernias, for whatever, eventually like the price because it's going to be a competing market and the price is going to go up and up and up. I'm um I've had some brush brushes with the um, American system and um. I know, like, I, I almost gave birth in the United States of America, and uh, thankfully, I was shipped to Montreal at the last minute, but my C-section would have costed me $25,000 easy in the States, and in Montreal, my C-section, because I saw the bill, they sent it to Ontario, because I gave birth in Quebec, right? They sent it to Ontario, was $686. Jeez. So... So, you know, it's really widely inflated and that's at the risk that yeah. this would happen here as well. Um, yeah. So you end up so you end up needing, you know, as the system starts to become more and more private, you end up needing insurance. Insurance. Yeah. And insurance is expensive. Yeah. OK. And another uh, profit motive there. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because they're there to make money too. the insurance companies. Yeah. And then the problem is too with the insurance companies. What if you've got a pre-existing problem like diabetes or something? You yeah. can you may maybe you can't even get the insurance. Right. You, you, no, yeah. you can't. You know, uh, talking about um, other jurisdictions and what happens there. There was a study done recently uh, in the National Health Service in Britain, because between 2014 and 2019. Uh, there were a number of referrals made, and this was to address a backlog. So uh, there were surgery center for profit centers uh, en masse, and uh, there was tracking done. And what they found in terms of death rates, the death rates went up 0.38% for every 100,000 people. So uh, the conclusion based on all that data was that the for-profit care seemed to have cost 557 deaths, additional deaths from 2014 to 2019. Hmm. So uh, it's th there's evidence in jurisdictions all over the world on what happens, uh, in, what the difference is between uh, for, for profit and public health care. They're simply, they have to make money somewhere. And the government okay. is going to continue being Santa Claus and paying them more for the work they do. They're going to have to get the work they do by their efficiencies, which are not going to be good news for the patients. Well, so, again, oh, go well, ahead. No, 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 go. I was going. No, to I was just going to say I, again because I think that people here don't understand what what this is going to mean for them. I because I, I think profit and death these are kind <laughs> of important. Um, yeah. And. Uh, you know, if you end up having to pay, what happens in the U.S. is, uh, you know, you, you end up paying what you can. So you also have all kinds of different levels of health insurance. And a, and a huge, huge number of Americans are underinsured. They have huge uh, deductibles. deductibles. Okay. 
uh, that just that, that are out of pocket. Yeah. People, people I, here, here don't understand what this is going to start to, you know, it's going to snowball. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've been hearing that uh, during the COVID time, the uh, the deductibles have been increasing and increasing and increasing over the last three years in the States. And a lot of them now are at as high as $10,000 deductible. Well, I yeah. mean, you're paying insurance because you don't have common. money, right? And $10,000 out of pocket is a lot of money. So yeah, under insurance for sure. Yeah. I had that experience in my own family. I have a sister who lives in California and her husband became very ill. They were insured. He had had a very good plan apparently. He was a contractor, but she said it was the deductibles that just about killed them. Yeah. But they, they, they also say, yeah, they, they say that in the, the US, one third of the bankruptcies are due to medical expenses. I believe it. That, that's just yeah. tremendous. Yeah. Yes, if so, you have cancer, you know, it's hundreds oh, of thousands of dollars, right? Right, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So for anybody that's not really, you know, thinks all oh, public, private, what's the difference? In plain language, like what is the difference, say, between public and private? Just for well, the, the public is designed to be supported by tax dollars. Everybody contributes to it, so everybody has access to it. And there Equal are access to to healthcare, and there are five principles of the Canadian Health Act, and frankly, we're falling a little bit short in some of them. Like access is one of them. Well, access is something pretty subjective. If you have to go to Ottawa to have access, and when there isn't easy transportation, for example, I mean, if whatever treatment you need can't be had at your own local hospital, well, then access becomes kind of subjective. Now it's portable. Now, Julia, you recognize when you gave birth in Quebec, it was uh, billed to OHIP. So that shows that the system is portable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, offhand, I can't think of the other three <laughs> qualities. Can you think of what they are, Louise? Universality. Everybody, uh, every Canadian citizen has a right yeah. to public health care. Um, comprehensiveness, which is meant to say that every medical condition is covered. Well, we know that that's not quite true. Um, and um, public administration, one one payer, the government. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And on the other hand, private? You're on your own, buddy. <laughs> well, private, private is fine if you are, you know, the top 1% owners, if you earn, you know, $500,000 a year. Well, it's probably not too much for you to spend $45 for $45,000 for a hip replacement. But for the other 99% of Canadians, you know, that's a huge burden. And if you have a disabled child, you know, it's those are horrendous costs. And, um, you know, you you need public health care, you know, to pay for those things. You can't afford to pay even 10% deductible on those costs. So we do have a solution. Not only that, but why should, you know, why should my, but why should my kid, why should my child have to wait or, or get less care because I can't pay for it? I mean, well, it depends on how you're seeing healthcare, mother, right? If you're seeing it as a, uh, a basic need, then yes, you know, a hundred percent you got, but there's a lot of people that don't see it like that. They see it as a, no. uh, a business, business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what were you going to um, say, Louise? 
Louise was saying there's a solution. Yes, we, we need we need to work together as citizens to preserve our health care. And uh, that's where the Ontario Health Coalition and the Cornwall Health Coalition, working with them, have a plan to tell the government, no, this is not okay. This is not what the citizens want. We want public health care to remain, get rid of the for-profit system, you know, keep it public. It, it's a jewel in Canada's crown. That's what people always say, right? Yes. All over the world, it's recognized that public health care is one is really the most important and the only thing. You can have a billion dollars, but if you have liver cancer and you're dying, that billion dollars isn't going to do anything for you. So, uh, so we're going to hold a citizens referendum throughout Ontario. All of the communities in Ontario, you know, are going to participate in the vote, and it's going to be a simple ballot. You know, do you want for-profit health care in Ontario? And you're going to hopefully answer no, because most of us think that way. But you know, some people may answer yes, and they're entitled to their vote as well. You know, in this kind of little d democratic system. So on the 26th and 27th of May, all over Cornwall and uh, the surrounding villages, we're going to hold um, a public vote and we're going to have voting stations in all these communities. It's all staffed by volunteer volunteers. Elaine and I are volunteers and every one of the people working with us are volunteers. Thanks, Louise. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, you know, and we're going to hold the vote and uh, we'll count up our votes and then they're going to be paper ballots. We're going to, on the 31st of May, we're going to bring them to Ottawa, uh, to Toronto, to Queen's Park, all over Ontario. All of the health coalitions are bringing their ballots and we're going to dump them in Queen's Park and say, listen, we're hoping to have a million votes. A million people in Ontario want public care. And that's what the government needs to listen to. And I think that that will be so overwhelming a vote that, uh, you know, the government will have to listen and will have to back off, back off, yeah. you know, the privatization. Surely they'll hit pause when they uh, are, are faced with that overwhelming uh, response on the part of the, the population. So, you know, uh, we might not roll back the legislation, but we believe we can certainly stop its implementation mm -hmm. because this is such a major change to our civic personality, if you will, that this should have been an election issue so that the people have to think about it and have to decide. But that didn't happen. In fact, the government denied during the election of uh, 2022 that private health care was on the uh, on, on the radar consistently on the chopping block yes well they, i mean they did yeah, that yeah. there so there. now yep yeah so all of a sudden <laughs> they've won the election they have a majority and so they're bringing it in it's kind of like bringing it in the back door i think with the hope that they can just count on people being discouraged yeah. and desperate for any kind of uh, medical care that they they will accept this thinking it's a temporary thing and then, of course, if it's allowed to develop unchecked over a four-year period until the next election when it could become an issue, there are, there's obviously a great advantage to those who want to opt for and impose the private system in the province. So we think that that, that just can't be allowed to happen. 
This is too big an issue to be decided behind closed doors. This has to become a, a matter of public debate where people yeah, have absolutely. to decide and consciously decide and choose what they want. So, well, um, yeah. You you were you were reading the the um, the bill there uh, with the five um, uh, things yeah, that describe the Health Act, Act. right? Yeah. So, but that's Canada, that's federal, right? So, isn't there something that can be done um, to prevent the Ontario government from privatizing by going through the federal yeah. government? Well, you know, it's interesting that the federal government was under tremendous pressure to increase the health spending to the provinces over this last year. I'm sure you heard mm -hmm. every, every premier was saying, you know, bring Trudeau to the table. We've got to convince them to give us more money. And what the federal government was saying, uh, Jean-Yves Duclos was saying, was that they wanted to see outcomes and that there, it wasn't going to be an automatic transfer because it, it little benefits the population if Ottawa gives more money for health and then a province should put the money elsewhere, maybe in a rebates to people for their license stickers or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> the federal government is ultimately the payer, but the province is the administrator of the funding. Mm -hmm. So there obviously has to be uh, controls over how the money is spent it's so that it goes to healthcare. And there's so much, uh, actually it was something pretty wonderful happened uh, a couple of months ago when there was a virtual care set up, a telephone service that right from the get-go, you phoned up and <clears throat> you gave your credit card number and um, Minister Duclos shut that down. He said he was going to claw back money, <clears throat> excuse me, from any provincial ministry that was going to approve that. And I believe they did. So, yeah. so that got shut down. But, you know, it's always this delicate balance between um, levels of government. And I'm absolutely sure that uh, the federal government is watching very closely. Mm -hmm. Well, they're asking for accountability. And this is, right. this is and they should. Sure. This is part, sure. this is part of why we've had some of the problems that we've yeah. had, is that they, they stopped accountability. Yeah. And, and as, yeah. as citizens, we expect that from our government. Our, our citizens expect it of us when we're in government. And that's simply the way our system is. That's a democracy. So, okay, May 26 and 27 is the big voting. And then April 26, our local chapter is having a fundraiser, correct? 23rd, I believe. What's the Sunday there? 23rd. Oh, okay, the my bad. Third, <laughs> having a fundraiser dinner at the Legion. We have a few expenses. And we're not going to make a lot of money, but we would like to make some because some of the places where we're setting up polls, we may have to pay a fee, which is fair. And the ballot boxes, we want to go with a regular official ballot box. I wish I had brought it out of my car and had it here to show you because uh, <laughs> it, I think uh, it's just cleaner and I think inspires confidence more than uh, a wrapped up liquor store box might. <laughs> so so we have some expenses that we have to cover. So we're having a dinner on the 23rd of April. And you can get tickets by emailing cornwall.health.coalition at gmail.com. And I'm sure if you I have 10, I have 10 to sell, guys. Yep. <laughs> And I'm sure if you go to our, our uh, Facebook page, which is Carmel Health Coalition, this, mm -hmm. the same uh, string of words, 
that you'll find a reference to the dinner and the email address likely the cornwall.health.coalition at gmail.com and you can get tickets for the dinner and tickets are selling well we're happy about that and how much are they they're thirty dollars okay yeah and it's the, the world question thanks for asking and world famous chicken dinner oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> famous chicken dinner <laughs> oh, i, I believe I was going to say, believe me, you're going to get your money's worth for $30. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's sure. delicious. I, I have a question. What can people do, uh, apart from showing up for the vote, which we hope will happen in droves, yeah. what else What what else uh, do you need? Well, I want, to have, oh. I want to interject first and say, go and join the Cornwall Health Coalition group yeah. on Facebook. That's your first line of, of communication. Good. Join the group if you're interested in yeah. seeing what's going on and uh, you'll be kept uh, abreast of everything. Go ahead, ladies. We also have beautiful lawn signs coming to show right. people in your neighborhood and to, to alert people to what's happening about the vote. So we'll have lawn signs available in a couple of weeks and hopefully the ground will be thawed enough for us to be able to stick them up. So uh, you can contact us at, at um, the Facebook, at, at our uh, email address and we'll put you on the list to receive a sign. Uh, the signs are going quite well. We have a lot of people who signed up for the signs. Yeah. And uh, as the tulips come up, I hope our signs will come up too. Yes, and uh, I guess on- uh, do, you need, do you need people who volunteers? Oh yes, we do. Now we're going to have a meeting at the Legion on the Sunday before the dinner. That's April 16th at one o'clock in the afternoon. We invite everybody who's interested to come because at that point we will be organizing the polls. We'll have the locations identified and people who have volunteered can take that opportunity to say, I wanna work at that poll or this poll. You can form up your teams. Every poll is going to need a captain and at least eight people because it's a two day poll from 10 to three. So two people at a poll for say two and a half hours each, that's four people per day. So that's eight people for the two days. So we need volunteers, by all means, come on out and come on out and you can get your signs that day too if one already hasn't been delivered to your place. But Brian Lynch, of course, is going to be our sign coordinator and he's so efficient at this. Okay, Good. And, and Julia, you can put all the information after we finish the uh, discussion. I, I've, about I'm putting people... it on, uh, on the Perfect. stream as Perfect. we're going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. that email I sent you last night. It, it has all those dates in it too. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. yeah, we really appreciate you giving us a chance to speak to your viewers today. At any time, and I know you ladies are going to be back in May as well, just to talk a little more as we're approaching the date. I want to thank you so much for being with us and for uh, enlightening us about the situation. I, I feel like uh, it's it hasn't been in the news enough. It's been no. uh, swept under the rug, you know, and no. uh, it's important that everybody. Uh, knows about it and, yeah. and again like i said at the beginning i hope this motivates you guys all of you are um looking at this i hope it motivates you to actually do something and um we'll see you on the 26th and 27 i want to say yeah. yeah or the 16th or the 23rd or the 16th <laughs> yeah. Yeah. all right ladies well thank you Take so care. much for joining bye. us thank we'll you. see you thank soon bye-bye yep all right. Well, that was uh, so 
Interesting. Yeah, she is, yeah. Joy says silence is not golden. Ain't that the totally truth? agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's say the problem is people are not aware of what it means because, and you're right, Julie. If we went and took a, a kind of walked around and asked people, we would get some pretty yep. blank faces, or they're just going to say, "Well, nothing's going to change. OHIP's going to pay for it all anyway." Right, but but they, it they, won't. It won't. They're not aware that the the situation is actually happening. So well, the, the, it's going to change, and as it changes, what OHIP does is going to also change. They're going to have to. There's no reason why OHIP would pay more than they're paying now. I mean, they're saying that they can't pay or they don't want to pay right now. Imagine what it's like when when yeah. you end up with, you know, twenty price. or thirty or forty percent more cost yeah. added on. It won't yeah. work. Insane. Well, anyways, that's it for us for today, ladies. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, we'll see you next week. What do we have next next week, Miley's? I'm just going to put a quick plug in for our new little site. Oh yes, our new little publication mm-hmm. that I'm people so may not people may not know about this, but we're going to be doing the Seeker Snippet Edition. It's going to be coming out on the 18th of April, and it's going to be full of classifieds. We're kind of going back to our roots, right, Julia? Mm-hmm. We started off as classifieds. We're going to have little snippets of info, uh, yard sales, classifieds, all kinds of little contests. This is kind of a mock-up of what we're looking at. So we are selling for that right now. And the deadline to get into that, I believe, is what, Julia? Seventh. Which is like in a Friday. Case. Yeah. 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 And then our regular uh seeker is going to be coming out as well so we people are always saying they cannot find us where where can they see us well they're going to see us all over the place because mm-hmm. in two weeks we're going to have the snippets and then we're going to two weeks later the big edition's going to come out and it's always going to be like that and the april edition should be in today or tomorrow so look for your uh april issue and the issue is the gardening issue. So just a little, you know, a little plug. 22nd of April is the deadline for that. So we're working on the gardening issue right now, too. Perfect. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Have yourself a wonderful day. And a super duper week. Bye for now. Bye.